You are listening to highlights from one planning podcast interview with climate writer and speaker Amanda E. Machado, the founder of Reclaiming Nature Writing. I think that was definitely a pattern that I unknowingly replicated when I first started traveling. I think that's how the travel industry has kind of marketed to us, right? This idea that, you know, bucket lists and wanting to like check boxes of things you're going to do in each place and thing, you know, becomes this thing of like, rather than consuming a product that's an actual physical thing, you're consuming a country or consuming an experience. It's the same framework. We're still grasping at things. We're still compulsively trying to do X, Y, Z without really thinking about its impact, without really thinking about the relationships that we're making in those places, without really thinking about reciprocity. And, you know, a lot of it comes from a deeply colonial mindset also, right? So much of the travel industry was built on the idea of colonialism and which really kind of makes us all inherit this idea that whatever we need in life is going to come from seeking it elsewhere and grabbing it from somewhere else, right? Which I think is the more modern, like now in in 2020, 2022, I feel like now that's the way that we kind of replicate that colonial travel mindset of my life right now is not great. I'm going to take a vacation. I'm going to take a break and go somewhere else where I can get what I need, right? Which I think in a lot of ways can describe what I did at 24 as well. I think looking at that really deeply and really thinking about, you know, what is lost from that mindset and the harm that is caused by it has been something I've been trying to do over the last few years. And a lot of that has to do with land trauma, right? Like really acknowledging where our settlement from land comes from and how we can heal that in the ways that we travel. So I first heard that term from my friend, Marianne Thomas, a friend of mine who lives in Anchorage, Alaska, and they teach courses on land trauma and what that means to them. And they define it as as any severed connection we have with land. So this could be because of your ancestors, like in my case, having family members that had to immigrate from one country to another. But it also can mean the severment that we have with land every single day, living in the United States under climate change, where We are seeing, you know, the physical harm being done to land all the time and living in ways that are not necessarily connected to the land we live in, not really in relationship to the land we are. So I think learning that term, I learned it a few years ago from Matt, really just like was the aha moment of that moment while traveling in South America when I was on the land of my ancestors and feeling, I think, that term, you know, that's what it was. That was the heaviness. That was the intensity. That was also the healing of that feeling of being reconnected to a piece of land that I had been severed from. And I think during that time too, really realizing even where I live now in Oakland, California, how that is being replicated every day, you know, that I still, even living here in five years, don't necessarily have the deepest relationships with the trees here or the forests or the mountains. And I don't actually know a lot of the history of what's happened on this land and how it's evolved and how it's changed and what my impact has been on it. And I think trying to rebuild those connections has been super, super healing and super important and has also just given me a new framework for how I travel, that it's not, you know, only about doing new things and going on new adventures and hopping from one place to another, but really about how can we visit land in ways that we are actually connecting more to it and not continuing this pattern of being separated from it. Yeah. So after coming out, I went to Mexico, which is where my mother's from, and spend most of my time there interacting in queer communities and in queer spaces. And it just made such a huge difference. It was, again, such a flip from what I had seen in the U.S., where so much of queer media and queer representation is mostly white, right? And 
creates this idea that the queer community automatically means the white community. And thankfully, that's shifted a lot. I think shows like Vida that came out recently and Hentified and just a ton of other movies that are coming out lately and books by Latinx queer writers are really shifting that. Thankfully, I think this generation coming up now will have so much more representation to get. But for me, I think, yeah, I think what was most healing and most necessary at that time was to go back to Mexico and to see for myself what queerness looked like under a Mexican context, how it was different than what I had seen in the States, how it might more feel like home. And yeah, and also really unpacking the history behind queerness and Latinx cultures, how it had always been there, right? This idea that it was invented recently or something that just came out of nowhere is completely false and like really understanding the way indigenous communities in Mexico had interpreted queerness, had words for queerness. There was a word that I learned, patlache, which is a word, a Nahuatl word that meant women that were in love with other women and had been used for a really long time. So learning that history of transgender communities in Oaxaca that, that were called mushes, yeah, just knowing that there was always terminology for this, there was always, these ideas always existed. You know, we always knew about this. Just a lot of that has been erased, hidden, or with Catholicism and with other influences of colonization, a lot of that has just been hidden away, you know, from the narrative of what queerness is in Mexico or in the United States as well. So yeah, learning those stories, being in those spaces definitely was like a really healing way. And yet another way that travel becomes this thing that always allows me to expand how I think of myself right? and how I think of myself in relation to other people. Yeah, that trip was a, was a great example. Of that. I had a conversation recently and it was on the point of there's different diversities, right? As well, there's also people who say have autism or Asperger's. They're not always counted or they don't have to disclose or it's illegal in some countries to disclose like whether you're queer or you're not supposed to ask. So there's so many filters and it can be a confusing space. And then this interview opened my mind because it was about diversity of different aptitudes of personality types of whether, you know, sometimes if you're talking about diversity around a boardroom, whether, you know, often it's the most out spoken or charismatic who get their ideas and take up all the oxygen. But then sometimes the quietest person will have some of the really good ideas, but they won't have a space at the table. Yeah. And I think that's what I try to focus on as well in, in these workshops, in my writing. And I think that's also what like travel has helped with, right? Like to understand that it's just because experience the world in a certain way, either through power or privilege in the US does not mean that we'll experience the world the same way if we were in France or in Mexico or in a different context, in a different place. And again, that malleability, right? That malleability of our identity and our, the amount of power we hold and, and don't is something I really picked up on from traveling and something that I think really helps when thinking about these systems overall, right? Like you said, there's so at the same time, I'm holding a hundred different forms of power and a hundred different forms of privilege, right? And all of that can change depending on which context and environment I'm in. And I think getting people to really understand that and really notice how that happens because it's very fast and very subtle at times. It's a really great skill for then learning how you can then help, right? How you can then give up power when you need to give up power and take up space when you need to take up space and give the floor when you need to give the floor. So like all the different ways that can change in one day, <laughs> depending on the different spaces you're inhabiting. I find that the more I read about these kinds of connections to nature and the more I become mindful of my own experiences when I'm outside, it really does feel like the earth has a lot to say and has been trying to say it for a really long time and is quite frustrated at the moment that we have not been listening. <laughs> and yeah, when I read the work of these writers, 
people of color, queer people who've been writing about nature for this long. And um, yeah, I feel like that's what it feels like. It feels like they're listening and they're able to relay the message in a way that, that we all need to be hearing. What are some of those indigenous connections with the land and rituals that you observed or have taken part in? Well, I mean, my family, to be clear, we are mixed indigenous and Spanish ancestry. The indigenous part is pretty much erased in terms of documentation and in terms of culture. So I was not raised under any indigenous beliefs. I was raised very Catholic and with very assimilated Spanish, uh, like cultural beliefs, I suppose is the best way to describe it. So yeah, a lot of my work lately has been trying to unlearn that part and uncover the parts that have been hidden. But that is tricky in terms of not wanting to culturally appropriate anything or enter into spaces that are not mine or never, or not spaces that I was raised in. So I think I've mostly, you know, been using work like Robin Kimmerer and other indigenous writers who are writing and willing to share their knowledge about this to learn from. And while traveling, I think, you know, trying to be as respectful as I can and not enter spaces I'm not invited into, but witnessing, you know, the ways that indigeneity plays different roles in different countries, you know, like in the country where my dad's from, Ecuador, the indigenous population is really high. It's much higher than in other places. And it's much more present, like in the mountains and where he's from. You see people still dressed in traditional dress. You see people still practicing a lot of a lot of indigenous practices out in the open. And they've also been intermixed with so many other cultural parts of Ecuador in lots of different ways. So I think seeing that was really impactful when I was traveling to recognize that like everything, you know, like just the amount of presence, the impact, the way it's affected a national culture differs based on where you are. And in Ecuador has a really specific history that I admittedly don't know very much about, and I'm starting to, only in the last five years or so, really unpack and learn more of. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.